host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me here in studio with a smile on his face, <laughs> coming off of last night's extravaganza at Rogers Arena. That's my good buddy, Thomas Chance. Tom, what's going on, man? From ear to ear. I've never seen you walk into the studio here so happy. Usually you, you come in talking fantasy football. You walked in with a purpose today saying, let's talk hockey. That was such a fun game. That was such a fun game. And, you know, I went to the rink thinking like, okay, this is an interesting game. You know, you've got noted Canucks killer Tyler Toffoli back in the house. You've got Curtis Lazar's return to Vancouver. Travis Green. Yeah, those were the main talking points in last night's game. And then the three Hughes brothers. It's like mm-hmm. an interesting game. But, I, I, you know, I was coming off watching like that Pacers-Celtics game and sort of bemoaning the fact that the NHL doesn't have in-season stakes over the course of a, a long 82-game grind, especially from the perspective of a, of a beat writer. And instead, like, that was one of the best, uh, that was the most entertaining game that I saw live, uh, that I've seen live this season by a lot. Just, like, incredible action, incredible pace. The Devils are a warp speed hockey team, and we'll get into it more, but they don't really play, or they don't really right now use that speed in the service of, like, a blanket defensive solidity like they did last season. Especially in that Rangers series in round one, right, right. where they kind of just suffocated him and we and we praised them for it. Hasn't totally. been a lot of that this year. Well, and I think we saw a lot of it all season, and then it showed up when it really mattered, like when their back was against the wall in that series, and, and it felt like an arrival. And to this point, they haven't got that part of their game going. I, I don't think their goalies are helping them. Like, I think partly you need some confidence that you can actually prevent goals to play like that with team-level discipline. But, you know, spotty goaltending, uh, a, a big comeback to tie it 5 nothing. Rogers Arena sounded unlike anything I've heard in that building in t- 12 years. Okay, can I ask you something? But, but just while you're on that, because I'm going to let you keep going. Someone in the Discord came with a theory where I guess they were at a Ducks game at Honda Center or whatever it's called Mm. these days. And then they watched the game afterwards. It was the one over the weekend against the Avs where Leo Carlson scores the the shootout winner, right? Yeah. And they were saying that, like, by the time that had happened, most of the rink had emptied out and it was actually very quiet in the rink. Mm. But then when you watched it, it almost sounded like they were piping in artificial crowd noise to make it sound like everyone just went nuts when in reality it was pretty calm. Interesting. That's and there's a conspiracy theory about how uh, teams are piping in stuff. Kind of like the WWE does, right? Yeah. There's a big talking point. Or kind of like the NHL did during the bubble, right? right. Like ghostly cheer sound that yeah. you'd hear that was like always a little bit delayed. Right. The worst part about that ghostly cheer sound, by the way, is that it didn't have a disappointment. You know, like one of the right. fun. Like one a of groan. The... Yeah, the, oh. Or, or like a shoot. The... They, didn't, they didn't do a shoot, right? <laughs> no. Like during, during power play. Yeah. <laughs> they have some robot banging on the glass. <laughs> like, look what AI can do. No, the, uh, the, well, and that was the thing. Like the decibel level at Rogers Arena crescendoed throughout the night as the Canucks mounted this comeback, really hitting this sort of fever pitch when Niels Hoaglander, you know, whacked in a rebound that, I mean, Vitek Vanacek was just kicking out rebounds like it was his job. And, all of a sudden, this breakdown happens in the last minute, and we got to get into that play because it's one of the weirdest plays you'll see all year. And just like the the silence, the stunned silence, and it was just the, you know, you don't love the gut punch from the perspective of someone who wants good things for hockey fans in this market, but you love the emotional roller coaster, mm. you know. And and it's just that was a quality of game, a quality of entertainment that I, you know, I haven't been fortunate enough to cover frequently enough. 
even this season as the Canucks have been, you know, somewhat regularly picking their teeth with opponents. Well, if you can tell, we're both just bla- basking right now in this afterglow oh. of last night's highly anticipated Hughes Bowl. And initially, I would booked you for the show. I was like, all right, come on. It's uh, They're doing the Board of Governors meetings right this week. And I was like, there's a lot of NHL business stuff for us to discuss. I want to get into all that with you. And I'm sure we'll have some some time to do so towards the end of the show. But this event last night in Vancouver just took the entire league by storm, right? It felt like everyone was watching, everyone mm-hmm. was talking about it. And so timely, you know, I think we're just going to focus on that now and see As how we far should. we can go there. It was just, you kind of nailed all the reasons why, but it was such a delightful viewing experience because I feel like these types of games very rarely live up to the hype, right? I'm so used to, especially as like a, you and I just spend so much time watching and talking about fantasy football and these football games, and you always get so excited about these primetime games in particular, and then you actually get to the game and you watch it, and it's usually a blowout or a stinker. Rarely do both teams show up and actually deliver on the excitement factor. And in this case, not only do you get the 6-5 score, the dramatic ending, which you which you described there, but you also get the top players involved all kind of showcasing the cool individual traits in their games that actually right. make them top players, right? It was like each one of the guys, and we can talk more about them, did exactly what makes them so special. And and so if even if you hadn't really watched either of these teams very closely this year, you got a really good crash course in terms of like what makes Quinn Hughes so cool, what makes Jack Hughes so effective, even Elias Pedersen, like all, all this stuff was kind of in the ether, right? And so it was really fun to watch. Then you get the crowd, you get the Canucks wearing their best jerseys. Out of... Out of nowhere, by the way, they weren't. That wasn't one of the pre-scheduled. That was a surprise Canucks flying skate jersey, which I'm not a big fan of, by the way. No, okay, that's that's hopefully going to be the worst take you have today, but but we'll see. Uh, you get Ray Ferraro on the call. I know you were in the building watching it live, yeah. of course. But we're just but we've talked about this. Like we're so outrageous. spoiled by not only their chemistry, but also like Ray Ferraro just being. With all due respect to all like local color commentators, just so overqualified for that role for these Canucks broadcasts, and so I've been so Ferraro pilled for like ten years. Uh, but I mean, he's brilliant. I mean, he was just so all over it. Like he, we'll talk more about Vanacek later on when we get to the Devils portion of this. But like he was just so all over him all game. Every time he's like, "Oh my god, this guy just has no confidence right now." Look at that rebound. Like, and you rarely. I'm so programmed to all color commentators just like playing it so safe and like right. coddling everyone and being like oh like let's focus on the positive and in this case he was just calling it for what it was and it was like it was so refreshing to hear that okay can we can we i just want to talk really quickly before we move on from ferraro about one of the all-time great industry flexes i've ever seen which was ray ferraro's first game because he's only doing about 20 canucks games this season was a game the canucks played in ottawa and 35 seconds into the game brock besser shoots on a rush and the puck is saved, apparently, by, I think it was Anton Forsberg, but it mm-hmm. might have been their other goalie. And the puck is in the net, but by, like, a half millimeter, right? And just enough for the camera to actually catch it. And Ferraro, on the broadcast, 35 seconds into his first Canucks broadcast, is the only guy on the planet who calls it a goal on live broadcast and then is right when the NHL War Room stops play 30 seconds later. I mean, that's like an all-time flex for for uh for you know one one of the giants in our business yeah well he's watched a few few games from that vantage point yeah he, he knows he's got what he's talking about it. yeah um okay so let's start with the Canucks perspective here because I actually haven't really had a chance to talk about the Nikita Zurov trade on this podcast um since it happened late last week we can get into the dynamics of it a little bit and kind of like the calculus of the move 
I mean, I think you and I were generally both, and we'll get into the actual usage last night and maybe some of the concerning parts of it in terms of like what it's emboldening the coaching staff to do. But I think just from an acquisition cost perspective, right, you and I are both in the hundredth percentile of Nikita Zadorov enjoyers. Appreciators. Yeah, yeah. We have a we have a society, we have a we have a WhatsApp group. Um and so not only does that boost the Canucks entertainment value, but also just like what, a a future third and fifth like down the road. I just think everyone was kind of programmed to this is the type of player who profiles as someone that someone's gonna talk themselves into and become desperate for size on the back end and then give up an asset, which is like, whoa, I can't believe they did that. And maybe that would have happened if the Flames had slow played this till the deadline and built on that desperation. But they clearly just, I'm, I'm kind of curious for your take. Did they do it because they were like, listen, we had this offer and we just want to get him out of the room. Like we're so traumatized by how toxic last year's yeah. work environment was that we can't afford to let this play out for two more months. Or was it what I've seen people talking about, which kind of strikes me as more puzzling was like, well, the Canucks are one of the few teams that can just take on his full contract and so we don't have to retain, and we view that as a positive because that would be a baffling reason for this move from the Flames' perspective. For yeah. Me. Well, what I do think, you think I think it's a more baffling reason for this move in four months at the deadline. Like at the deadline, retaining half is a much lower financial hit than it is now to retain half, right? Given that you're paying these guys daily. Um, so you know, I, I think the I think that's part of it. Like I think that's part of it. I, I think the Flames valued the cap flexibility aspect. I think they valued the turn the page aspect of it, but like fundamentally four or five defensemen, Luke Shen, you know, Ilya Labushkin, like go down the list guys who profile pretty similarly to Zadorov. They get a third, they get Mm. a third at the deadline. The flames got a third and they got a third plus. So I don't know. I'm, I didn't find the return. I actually thought Conroy and company got ground a little too hard over what they netted here. Given how public that trade request was, um, you know, given everything around them, like I think they at least got fair market value and created full cap flexibility for themselves as they look to, you know, sort of see which way the wind blows over the next two weeks and calibrate their approach. Well, look to do what? I guess that's my question, right? No, but if you're selling, now you have additional money to take back, Mm. you know, at the deadline. Uh, You can problem solve for teams with that cap space. I mean, there's, I'm not, guaranteeing that they will creatively use it but i think there are at least creative things there are options that open up for you with this that said like i still like the acquisition price for vancouver uh, i was pretty critical of the club set trading tanner pearson in a second for casey DeSmith, for example um i stand by that one uh, i was pretty critical of them trading a fifth for sam lafferty who's the hottest guy in the nhl right now by the way scores mm-hmm. another deflection goal against the devils and and i stand by that one too but for me zadorov's a different sort of caliber of guy like it's not easy to find a six foot five <laughs> uh super entertaining defensive guy who you know i th- i see as sort of a four five type like i don't think he's gonna kill you on on a second pair if he's got the right partner i don't know that tyler myers is the right partner we'll we'll talk about that i'm sure but yeah i mean i, I thought this was just like sensible from the canucks perspective a good deal and from calgary's i you know i thought it was at least fair market i just think that they've been it's been suggested or like talked about like they got robbed and I just don't see that in this return. Yeah. We'll just put a bow on it from the Flames perspective because I don't think it's egregious by any means and you're right. It's like within the ballpark of what these types of players go for. I guess just like if the logic is, all right, we we wanted to get as much money off of our books as we could here so that we could 
churn around and then add a player who helps us first off they're like what 10 12 and some and four or whatever their record is with like a minus 11 goal differential they're gonna i assume trade both chris tanev and noah hannafin at some point here and in doing so yeah they certainly should and so it's like what player are you going to be adding that's going to soak up such a meaningful part of your cap yeah and it's also both all these guys are expiring so when you see elliot freeman go on hockey in canada and say that there was talks of a leafs deal where it was like, oh, we're going to give you Zadorov and Tanev, but you have to retain yeah. a meaningful amount, and then we'll make it work. And, and I'm sure the Leafs would have paid a, a pretty penny to facilitate that. I don't understand how this would be viewed as a better alternative. So that that, that was just why yeah. I, I found it strange. But well, I think it's fair, but I also think the like the sticker reaction, the reaction to the sticker price on Zadorov is instructive. Like if you have surplus picks and cap space the players you're able to add will shock you in terms of the prices that price that they go for. And, you know, it's not ideal, but the flames have at least set themselves up to potentially be in that market as, as the trade sort of talks grind into gear in the months ahead. Mm. Okay. Well, so the player, you mentioned kind of the, the fit in the team for the Canucks and the partner, right? And we've seen him now with Myers and, and speaking of puzzling, I mean, Rick Tockett, who has pushed, most of the right buttons this season. Yeah, he's been exceptional. Deciding to to hard match them against the Quinn, uh, Jack Hughes that, line that. was was very strange. And I've now covered him what for fifty, like almost sixty games. Yeah, twenty six plus thirty six. So yeah, fifty two games. I've covered fifty two games of Rick Tockett hockey. I've been really impressed. He has always leapt over with ease the are the right guys on the ice at the right times bar by which I mostly evaluate coaches. Um. This was the first time that I, I was really puzzled by a decision, like that I couldn't make sense of it. Yeah. I'm I'm not sure, you know, at the start of the year with the way the start the Canucks jumped out to, it seemed like a foregone conclusion that he had like cemented his Jack Adams status, right? Because that award is so much predicated on like exceeding expectations. And so with the Canucks start, it was like, All right, well Yeah. Like every every awards article we see right now is gonna have him front and center. Well, and he's been the gambling favorite by like a fair bit for almost a month now and i'm not sure if i'd go that far because i think whether it's todd mccullen who obviously has better personnel to work with or a paul maurice like i think there's coaches that might be tactically doing a better job but the point that i was making to you was like i do think that for all the talk of their pdo and the start hughes is off to and demco and everything like there's some really interesting trends with the way this canucks team is choosing to play that are illustrated by by sport logic stats maybe more so than some of the public ones that are available to us, and you sort of see this with the way they play, where Natural Statric has them at 18th in expected goals against. Sporologic has them at 9th. And the reason for that is because they lead the league in offense's own possession time. Now, they're not necessarily meaningfully like leveraging that into creating mm. sustainable 5-on-5 offense, but they're keeping the puck in the offensive zone through like grinding and forechecking and all that kind of like effort battle stuff that we've talked about. And the trickle-down effect of that is that the puck isn't in their zone very often, and yep. so they're limiting the volume they're facing. And so while Demko's goal save above expected is through the roof, and he's been phenomenal for large stretches of the year, they're also, I, I think, Tockett's doing a really good job of tactically like papering over a lot of these issues that we thought this blue line had, even with the Zorov edition. Yep. Now, when you play a team like the Devils or Vegas last week, or LA when they play them later on this season, or Colorado, or Colorado. Right Thanksgiving. Um, you know, you some of those kind of faster transition teams. I think 
a lot of that papering over is going to st- you're going to start seeing through it a little bit more yep. because they stretch you out they attack so quickly and all of a sudden now it's tougher to execute that game plan that they've been like it feels like they need to do everything right and stack together these sequences to make it work and then all of a sudden a team like New Jersey as we saw all of a sudden the puck comes up the wall they bump it into the middle and it's a two on one and you're like oh well everything we just worked on went out the window that's going to become an issue it was a it was a fascinating start to the game tactically from the Devils in part because they were like one of those hitters where their batting average is low, but if they connect, it's it's going for power, yeah. right? Like, I think they had five icings and five odd man rushes in the first seven minutes. Like, there was no outcome of any breakout pass attempt that wasn't either it's coming back for a draw in, in the devil's end of the rink or it's going to be... Uh, you know, a, a loud thwack off the bat, and we're going to see Jesper Bratt skate in. You know, with a, with another streaking Devils player against one one Canucks defenseman. But that has not been Vancouver's mo, right? Like Vancouver's usually played this prescribed offensive game, and and I think what you're bringing up is reflective of one thing that's most impressed me about Talkit, which has been this sort of thoughtful approach that I believe is designed, as you said, to protect his defensive issues, right? For most of the season, like JT Miller, who, you know, has played exceptionally well, but historically anyway, hasn't been like a lights out matchup option at right. center, has been effectively like self-matched with this Hughes Heronic pair. And they've sort of sicked those five with extraordinary discipline at home and and doing their best on the road against the the top of opponents lineups. And, and early in the year anyway, when this team was really flying, they were like winning that matchup on an every night basis. That's sort of shifted over the last month. It's pretty hard to do the Patrice Bergeron, like 55% control of shot attempts, but but really we're we're sort of at 45%. They're, they're at least breaking even, and they're not getting outscored, and for the most part, that's like fair enough. That's job well done. Um, and then Pedersen, who is probably this team's best two-way driver, plays with Vancouver's other defenders more often than not mm-hmm. and helps boost them. So you've got... You know, Hughes effectively helping Miller survive against Tufts and actually win that matchup. And Pedersen effectively helping to cover for, you know, your your minutes with Noah Juleson and Ian Cole on the ice or, or what have you. It's like this really smart marriage of matchup tactics and sort of understanding a, a of your tactical approach. But yeah. I, I did ask Talkie yesterday, like I literally took, not not explicitly, but I literally took that data to Talkit and was just like, you are crushing it in zone time but all of the public underlying metrics say you're middle of the pack like are you doing enough or is this a philosophical thing where you're happy to defend 150 feet away from your net he was like we have four guys on the outside way too much and it looks pretty but we're not getting enough done we need more traffic we need you know a guy at the net front we need a guy up high looking for uh like to clean up the the mess and make retrievals like i don't know he might just be playing hockey guy right you know he might he might be playing possum and not leveling with me about about what they're actually trying to do but he seemed to think that it was not a positive that they weren't translating the zone time that they're generating as frequently as they'd like into something a little more productive in the offensive end I don't know I don't know if I agree with him there because I still think that as well as Demko's played, like they can't really afford to play the way they did as a team at the start of last year. No, for example, no. and they just don't have the personnel. They don't have the horses, right? As, no. as as improved as they are, as fun as some of these games have been, I think they do have to like 
grind out wins and 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 so it's interesting to like how they think of themselves as opposed to what they probably need to be and and mm. i'm sure that you know maybe if you took him out for a beer and you were off the record it might sound a little different than than what he's saying to you as a reporter like it's yeah that's that's generally the cat and mouse game of of, of coach reporter right but, but but i did check it i did check it and he i he didn't seem to he didn't even like like leave me grounds to think that mm. there was something going well, on. He's a pretty but straight shooter. He so. is a straight shooter, right. especially on tactics, which yep. he's open to discussing. Um, which by the way, what a huge win. What a huge win, especially in this market where like NHL coaches see the game differently than you or me. Mm-hmm. And or, or or like the smartest, most engaged hockey fans, and I guarantee you that matches the description of anyone listening to the PDO cast, right? Like the people who care about what they're watching and like want to understand it better, you know, talk it as a head coach with his experience. Like he's going to see the game differently. He's going to see and, and filling in those gaps, you know, like he gave an interview the other day where he was like, this is a, this is a big analytics town. And it's yeah. like, yeah, that's awesome. Right. That's awesome. And, and part of the reason why this is a big analytics town is that the level of hockey knowledge that someone like talk has, isn't going to be matched by, the public or, or by the media, frankly, like obviously. So, you know, him being able to provide that, I think really helps fans, especially in a market like Vancouver, that's just completely obsessed with this team engage with and understand the sport differently. And, and I think that's like win, win, win. That's like Adam Silver would love that. Right. That's the, now we don't have to do the, well, the devils came out and wanted it more. Right. We can talk about actually what happened on the ice, the breakdowns and the tactics and you know, good for him, man. It's, it's, it's well, been fun to cover. Rick Tockett, come on the podcast when uh, <laughs> you are uh, formally invited. What, the reason why I brought this up, though, and we'll, we'll, we'll head on this and then we'll go to break, is I wonder how much of this then is him actually just experimenting. How much of It's still early in the season, right? How much of it is him actually thinking the be- this is the best usage of his personnel and how much of it is maybe not a concession, but like uh, some frustration maybe peeking through because – when this trip to Dorov trade happened, and it's been a week now, so I think it's like not not new. Everyone's had a chance to think about it, but we jo- all joked about how oh, it'd be hilarious to see him and Tyler Myers on the ice at the same time. I wonder when that happens. And then we did. And then them just going to that and being like full blast, it's not gonna work because like Zadorov needs a guy like Mackenzie Weger to do a lot of the the heavy lifting from a puck movement perspective, right? Like Zadorov is good sometimes flying up and getting involved and carrying the puck himself, but you see it on that on the what was it the second goal the Devils scored last night where and you know Jack Hughes like made Tyler Myers look silly with like all right no you can take the puck certainly and then just sitting back and waiting for him to give it back to him that was that was very much a like these are not the droids you're looking for moment but when one of those guys go like through so much of today's game is predicated on the puck is gonna go behind your goal line and one of your defensemen needs to be able to go stop the puck and then either make a play up to a forward. Or like absor- eat a forechecker and get it to his defense partner yeah. so they can skate it out, and neither of these guys can do that. No, and so you just well, can't in today's game play two guys like that together as big as they are and as like oh like it's fun having them both in front of the net like that's an issue. And so using them against the Jack Hughes line is alarming, and then using them together is also alarming. And I wonder if we see like I think a guy like Philip Hronik would make a lot of sense with Zadorov, but then you get into the issue of all right, well the top pair has been so good that do you really want to split them up? Yeah, I do think you need to see it, though, given Heronix arbitration status, right? And and given the size of the commitment you're you're staring down the barrel of. Like, I, I, I do think you want to see what he can do driving his own pair before you make him, you know, 
um, not not like one of the highest. I'm not going to go that far, but certainly one of the top 20 highest paid defensemen on, on a long-term deal with his next contract if that's what he wants. Um, that play, though, right, is, is illustrative, too, because it's not just about Myers not taking care of the puck. It's Zadorov follows, like, reads the play in a way where he comes to Myers, and you end up with Myers, Miller, and Zadorov all in the corner, something talking himself called out post-game. Like, Eric Halla had time to set up a lemonade stand. Mm-hmm. Like, draw the sign. Right. Be like, ah, oh, she teaches at my school when someone stops. Like, you know, it's... That was one of the worst breakdowns I've seen in any hockey game all season. Right. And it wasn't the Canucks' worst breakdown of the game. Yeah. Which we'll get into. Uh, that said, I do think we saw... Like a, a, it was a pretty good sampling of the full Zadorov experience. Like he makes a great play on the entry for the Dakota Joshua, the four-two goal. Um, he also had just a brilliant shift where he like threw a hit at the blue line to not just prevent the rush, but like stop the rush dead and take the puck. And then when the puck went back, Canucks you know went down low, went D to D, and he found Niels Hoaglander with this like high-low pass. That, that resulted in a scoring chance that was just absolutely brilliant. And so there were these shifts where you saw Zadorov do wild stuff. He probably should have taken a penalty on Jack Hughes in the games, like with right. 70 seconds left in the game. So you saw some of that. But you also have just these moments where he does like genius tier stuff. And, and that that contrast, it, I mean, it brought a lot to the most entertaining Connects game of the season. I'm really enjoying Jack Hughes just going full. Nuke. I'm going to berate linesmen and officials. Well, it was amazing. And in both instances that I'm referencing, he was correct. Correct. Um, and he should. Yeah. And because superstars in this league do not get officiated the way they should. Um, but at the same time, it, I just thought it was really funny. Well, what was crazy, too, is the puck. So he gets tripped by Zadorov. They both end up in the corner. The referee is right there. Yep. Jack Hughes steps up and starts visibly berating the official. But the play was like the puck's kind of tied up in Zadorov's skates. So the play actually like stayed in that corner. It was like it was like the whole arena went dark and there was like a spotlight. Yeah, Jack Hughes yelling at an official. It was fabulous. <laughs> it was so good. Um, <laughs> Game had it all, man. It really did, and that's why we're doing a full we, show on we, it. I we have it. to talk though about the Devils being accident. Well, on the other side, on the Devils being accidentally shorthanded on the game winner. Yes. Okay. We'll take a break here, and then when we come back. We'll pick it right back up. We're joined by Thomas Drance. We're talking about the Hughes Bowl and the uh, the day after. You're listening to the Hockey Pediocast streaming on the Sportsnet Radio Network. All right, we're back here on the Hockey PDO cast with Thomas Drans. Tom, we focused a lot of this, uh, and, and I think deservedly so, on the Canucks' perspective, right, and kind of yeah. last night's game, everything we saw from them, both good and bad. Let's kind of pivot a little bit to their opponent and talk about the Devils because you got to see them in person first time this year. Very exciting team coming in with a ton of expectations. I think they get the win, right? At the same time, though, it's sort of reinforced a lot of the concerning stuff we've seen yeah. from them this year. And so it's one of those things, I think... I, I, I will say, though, I, will, I don't come away from that particularly concerned. Like, you know what you know what the devils feel like to me, and you're going to hate this, so I'm just warning you in okay. advance. You know how a battery has, like, a positive and a, and, a, and a negative side, right? The Metropolitan Division has a has a battery within the division. And the negative side of it is the Carolina Hurricanes, and the positive side of it is the New Jersey Devils. And both of these teams will, at some point this season, have a six-week run where they go like 15-2-1 with a plus-35 goal differential. 
for the Hurricanes, it's going to be a run of games where the puck starts going in for them. And for the Devils, it's going to be a run of games where they actually get saves. Mm -hmm. And I'm completely unworried about either team having a more pedestrian start than we anticipated because that team will be, for a month and a half, at some point in the next four or five months, one of the best teams in the league for for a stretch that cements them as you know more than a wild card team in in my view. Probably because that's how <laughs> hockey works, and especially goaltending. I'm going to have Kevin Woodley on next week. I'm going to bring him back, and we're just going to do a full section on Vanacek and the Devils goaltending. I thought Vanacek was coughing out rebounds. Well, I, he was he was he was never going to keep the Canucks off the board, in my opinion. Like. It, it, all game long, you could tell it was coming. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I think if there was another minute on, if you added another minute to the clock, the Canucks would have tied it back up at six. Like, right? It was. It, was, it felt agree. like an inevitability. They just ran out of time, really. It, and it was a really fascinating dynamic too, where the, where like it always felt. It never felt when the game was close, like the Devils wouldn't get the next goal, but it never felt like when the Devils got the lead that it was over. Yeah. It was a very strange dynamic. And there's been a big debate. I've seen amongst Devils fans and, and, and people on Twitter in general about how much of this is at late, like should be laid at the feet of the goalies, right? And how much of it should be laid at the feet of the way the team is playing, this perceived like risky style of being offense first and everything. And you look and, okay, the Sharks are the only team that's given up more goals against sure. per minute than them. Last year, that was not the case. Like they were, I, I think they were eighth or something in, in terms of fewest goals against. They're giving up more than an hour uh, a goal per hour right. more than they did last year. Now, Anacek is like minus seven goal save above expected in 16 games. So that's definitely part of it. That's definitely part of it. And then you watch, and, and that was last night was not an aberration. Like that has been a recurring theme this year. And, and so, you know, you have these stats where, contrary to belief, like they're not actually giving up that many odd man rushes against with their playing style. I think they're actually amongst the league leaders in terms of like limiting them. The issue is that when they happen, similar to what we talked about with the Oilers at the start of the year, when they do happen, it's like catastrophic. And also, when Vanacek's almost playing as if like he's been told that he just needs to make one save and then his work is done for the night. And so he like makes the initial save yeah. and then he just kicks it out. And he's yeah, like, he, all right, he like wipes his hands and he's like, oh, job well done by me. And then it's like he doesn't care. He's not on the clock anymore. And it's so bizarre to watch. So I don't think there, from what I saw last night and from what I've seen this season, I don't think there's any issues with how the Devils are playing defense five on five. No. I think there are issues with their penalty kill. Right. And I think they were damn fortunate that the Canucks didn't but score. But the Canucks power play is also going to make a lot of penalty kills look like that. A hundred percent. But like the Canucks power play wasn't even sharp last night. Right. And they. Yeah. I mean, there was that sequence where like Hishier blocked it with his butt or like Benachek <laughs> yeah. wasn't even in the frame right. because and of the then, passing. Just... And then Miller hit a post. Yeah. Um, now they generated some against the grain stuff and they actually had a really cool set play toward as, as one of their power plays expired where they like did sort of a, a quick regroup in the um, in their own zone, went D to D fast and then hit. I think it was John Marino for a breakaway pass. Yeah. It was cool. Coming out of the box, I think. Right? Yeah, but like I've never seen a team like really like execute that type of set uh, in that position. I thought that was uh, I thought that was creative and, and a ton of fun. Five on five, I, I mean, think about the Canucks goals, right? It's like Dakota Joshua, you know, that's kind of a, a gritty garbage goal. Like that's going to happen. Uh, I think Vanacek could have done better there. Brock Besser on the backhand, lovely finish, great pass. That was probably a little bit soft by um, 
the Devils' defense. Like, that was bad puck management behind the net, an unforced error. I'd say the roots of the Canucks' comeback were kind of set there. Lafferty tip, what are you going to do? Guys shooting 14% on the on ice, like his on-ice shooting percentage. I mean, pucks are just bouncing in off Lafferty every game, so whatever. I mean, that's on. That's a soft one, but it's not a big deal. And then that Hoaglander rebound, to me, that's the that's a tough one because there, there wasn't like a – it wasn't like the Brat game winner right? where you've got he sure – you know, with Dakota Joshua and Ian Cole kind of draped on him at the net front. Um, and there's so much havoc going on that you understand why Demko couldn't quite control it as, as well as he needed to. And the guy the guy at the net front is like right in the blue paint and completely uncovered. Like this shot out pretty far. Um, there wasn't a ton of traffic beforehand. Like Vanacek has to do better with that rebound. He, he does. And it's always strange to me when... Um... You know, everyone has this idea, I guess, of what a, a Stanley Cup contender should look like and the way they're going to need to play in the playoffs, right? And I'm sure there's a little bit of truth to it, but like this Devils team, the bar a goalie needs to clear playing for them is so low because they're just so explosive offensively, and and now fully healthy with Hughes and, and Hisher back, like you're seeing it. They're yeah. just they're I, when they score less than five goals in a game, I'm I'm. Astonished. I'm surprised. Yeah. I'm like, wow, uh, the other goalie must have played really well or they were pretty unlucky. There was plus steam on the over at seven last night. And um, I don't want to be on the other side of the on, on the under on that. Like, pl- I don't know. Plus money on the over at seven and it almost cashed in the first. I was like, oh, my God. Yeah. Um, and so. Whenever this happens with a team, right, th- there's a certain segment of fans that come to the defense of the goalie and it's like, all right, the defense in front of them needs to be better. And I'm sure there's instances where you can show breakdowns and like, oh, they could have they could have supported him a little bit better. But like the goalie's job is literally to make saves. And the way we talk about it sometimes is a bit off to me where you're like you're paid to make the save and, and it's okay for the defense to break down and then the goalie to bail them out, right? It's not yeah. like you're not necessarily paid just to make the saves you're supposed to make. Your no. job is to also steal to some. Games. Yeah. And so when, whenever we get into this, like, all right, whose fault it was, I just think sometimes it, it leans too much in in the defense. So I understand it's like it's very easy sometimes to just point also to the goalie on the other end of it and be like, all right, well, he, he needs to be better. But at the same time, I, I just – those rebounds, like, all night, it's just everything is being kicked out to the middle. It's, it's just not good enough right I, now. I'd also add that I think it makes, like, the emotional experience of watching hockey and then assigning blame for breakdowns. Like, the problem with that, too – is we don't assign blame in a weighted way depending on the outcome of a shot that actually has nothing to do with the breakdown that preceded it, which is why we get fooled right. by guys having, you know, like by the entire Boston Bruins defense um, because the goalies are bailing them out every time there is one of those breakdowns. We don't attach the same resonance to it. Like, I actually think that's a really flawed way of evaluating right. players. Based on the, based on the pure common, result. Yeah, yeah, and a super common one. Uh, here, look, the Devils are not, in my opinion, and certainly did not last night, as the Canucks mounted that comeback, surrender, like, an undue number of five alarm chances. In fact, the the 5-3 goal, the Brock Besser goal, was the only one that I would say, what are you going to do as a goalie when a, when a, you know, pass goes that quickly from the end boards into the middle, got, you know, to an a- above average finisher who's got absolutely no one on him and has the time to just beat you with a perfect shot. Like you're moving one way quickly. Yeah. He's making you move the other way quickly. What are you going to do? That was the only one that I would say that's a team breakdown. Uh, everything else for me anyway, like, you know, especially the a deflection goal and, and an ugly rebound goal, like those are on Vanacek. 
the good thing, the good thing, like if you're looking for positives from a devil's perspective is again, like, you know, we live in a world where the devils went into the season with Vanacek and Akira Schmid. Yep. And the Kings went into the year with Cam Talbot and Phoenix Copley. Right. And if you'd had to like bet which team would have better goaltending for the first eight weeks, you probably would have bet on New Jersey. Mm -hmm. If you were to bet on which team will have better goaltending over the next eight weeks, like you'd probably you feel like you bet on LA, but you you know what you don't know you don't know and I don't know. LA's so good defensively though. LA's so good defensively, right. but also it's Cam Talbot and Phoenix Copley. Yeah. Are you going to no. be surprised if LA has a you know nine hundred save percentage five on five over the next thirty or next fifteen games and is still like winning a lot of them? Yeah, I won't be. Well, that's why this is the ultimate like head versus heart thing almost right because like when you when your goalie's playing this poorly and when you feel as helpless as i'm totally. sure devils fans felt last night watching that lead evaporate and then feeling like okay like we're looking at the clock please tick down to zero before they score a sixth right. goal here it can feel so helpless and and, and just feel like you, you're never going to get out of this hole but as we talked about with la a couple weeks ago on the show it's also the like out of all the things that could be wrong with your team it's the most fixable because even if the goalie's bad yeah, he can just fall into a six-week stretch where he makes a lot of saves, and all of a sudden it's no longer an issue. Or you've got some guy who has like failed, quote unquote, in Utica, right? Who who you've never given a shot to, who can come up and give you six weeks of good goaltending, or just like, oh right, they were an above-average starter we never gave a look at, like a la, a la Jordan Bennington or right. something, right? I mean, the 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 one thing I do think is if you get to a point where your season's on the brink and your team starts blaming the goaltenders and slumping when those bad goals go in and not responding the way the Devils did last night, where it was like, okay, well, they're not going to get another scoring chance on us. We're just going to win this game. Um, you know, and I think Edmonton got to that point a few weeks ago, for example. They seem to have rebounded a bit. But, like, when you get to a point where a team's confidence and play style is impacted by the goaltender, then I think you do need to be proactive in making a change. Right. Not because you need a new goalie, but because you can't it's have It's having, a team. like, insidious effects on the rest of the team. Because Just because you don't want your team to... And one thing I would say is, like, I, I do wonder, given how permissive Devils goaltenders have been, does that make it harder for Lindy and company to sell the let's use our speed as a defensive blanket thing uh given that you know if you're a devil's player right now surely you feel like we need six right so you know i i do sort of wonder how how connected those are for for the devils right now um some just some other impressions like um i was really excited to watch our guy mercer dogs and mm -hmm. mercer play last night uh alexander holtz um bit of a project like bit of a project still i don't think he's able to helpfully contribute to Meyer and Mercer stacking heavy shifts one on top of the other. There were too many plays, possessions that kind of died on Holtz's stick in the neutral zone. And, and that if that puck had gotten deep, you you know that Meyer and, and, and Mercer would have dunked on some Canucks defensemen for like 30, 45 seconds. Right. Um, and I was a little disappointed by that. I, I, I liked Holtz in his draft year. I liked him in the American League. Um, just doesn't look ready for that top nine role yet. Yeah, I will say in his defense, I think in the totality of this year, like I think that's been fewer and farther between, right? He started the year, his usage was so low. They were playing him in the bottom lineup. He like, during that stretch where they're all banged up, he was actually one of the few guys contributing. And I think he was like leading the league in five on five, and uh, his team yeah. in five on five goals at the time. Like, I think it's been a net positive for him. I actually think, like, I want to talk to you about Timo Meyer because I know you and I are both high on him. 
And Devils fans are mad at me now because I was selling them on him so much last year at the deadline where I was like, stylistically, this is such a good fit. The Devils need to go out and get him. And we were coming up with all these fake trades. And then sure enough, it happened, right? And he had a really snake bitten postseason where he was generating a ton of high danger chances and living around the net. None of it was going in. Takes that massive hit to the head from Truba, right? Like it was individually, it went about as poorly as it could for him. And then now this year, he's on the third line. He's not scoring. Then he yeah. gets hurt. Um, and so it's, it's tough because I gotta be honest, like he has not been good enough at the same time. This was not the player that he had been for the previous like five years. And so on the one hand, I don't, I feel bad for like selling devils fans on it, but at the same time, I feel like I've also been duped a little bit. I I thought he played fine. Like I don't, I I honestly, as an $8.8 million third liner. I mean, that line didn't, wasn't generative. Like that's the problem. That line, I thought that line would come in. And at least outduel Vancouver's like Teddy Bluger led third line. Now Teddy Bluger, the Teddy Bluger led third line with Garland and Joshua is probably Vancouver's most consistent five on five line. But I still thought you know you you have two uh, you, you have Meyer who I rate as a top of the lineup caliber piece. You have mm-hmm. Mercer who's maybe my favorite middle six center in the league, and you have this Holtz guy who you know I, I haven't seen live in in a while since he sort of became an NHL player. Like it. W- Holtz was turning the puck over so frequently that I just didn't get to see Meyer operate that much. He didn't make an impression on me one way or the other. Now, that's not what you want for a guy making eight and a half million, but I, I also don't think he was what was wrong with that line. He's not. He just wasn't around the puck enough, though. He, he just he has been ineffectual this year, and especially at that price, right? Like where you where, where you were sold, I guess, as the idea of what it could be, and then what it actually has been. It can be frustrating. Now, should note. The, on the PDO cast, his PDO is like 927 yeah, or something this year. Like fine. it's been miserable. Now the shares are all much lower than they should be on a devil on a team like the devils. Um, what I will note is like the reason why I thought he'd be such a good fit was not only like providing that sort of size and living in the yeah. slot compared to like playing with Jack Hughes. But then when you watch them play, maybe what I underestimated a little bit was like, I think from Meyer, the reason why he was so effective in San Jose was he got free reign to, take the puck and then use his like physical gifts to basically bully ball and like transition it and then just work downhill. But when he's playing with either Jack Hughes or Esper Bratt, he slows him down. I'd rather they, they have the puck. Yeah. Like I don't want Timo Meyer having the puck. And I think the devils have realized that. And that's why he's playing on this third line. Sure. And then now you've got an $8.8 million player playing on the third line with as much as I love dogs and Mercer. And as high as I am on Alexander Holtz as a piece for them moving forward, it's not ideal, right? And then you're playing second unit power plays, so he's not getting some of those freebies. And so you get into this spot where you look at his counting stats and you look at the entire package, and it's very disappointing. And so trying to figure that out, I mean, they're in year one of an eight-year deal, so mm. like there's going to be time to figure this out. But like, in, on the list of concerns or things the Devils need to figure out here quickly, I actually think figuring out the best way to get more out of him should be near the top of the list, even though offense isn't a concern for them. Yeah, no, and fair enough. I mean, one thing, like, I think that third line needs another transitional piece that's not Holtz. Mm. Uh, just that would be my that would be my quick diagnosis. Um, Andres Palat, by the way, continues to be the best pound-for-pound battle winner in the league going on a decade. Good for him. Love, love getting to see my guy cook last night. Um, the Jesper Bratt thing, so... Is Jesper Bratt okay? Jesper Bratt or Kyle Connor? 
from the perspective of who do you trust to get lost in coverage more? Because hmm. they've got to be the two best in the league. Yeah, yeah. Like Jesper very, Brad very is Jesper, Jesper Brad is um like a like a stealth bomber. Like he does not show up on anyone's radar, and then it's like, oh right, he's alone at the side of the net. That play uh, in the last minute, he takes this odd route, like he wins a battle against Dakota Joshua, angles him off off the puck to sort of make sure that it gets back to Kevin Ball at the point in in sort of one of the most crucial sequences. And then because Joshua, who's the winger, is now locked in along the wall, Pedersen, who's the low forward, goes up high, and Bratt doesn't even hesitate for a second. Instead of taking a normal route to the net, realizing that like the Canucks' low forward is now up high and that there's the opportunity for confusion, he circles the net. Right. And I just thought that is outrageously high end get open, get lost instincts from, from Jesper Brad. Just absolutely brilliant stuff from a guy who easily could have had like three or four goals last night, given the opportunities that he was generating consistently. I mean, what? It was so fun. he wound up scoring on the second one. Was that back to back? two-on-ones within like a 30 seconds span. Oh my God, I know. Um, yeah, the talk it brought that one up and sounded exactly. He's like, did we give up two <laughs> two-on-ones on one shift? It's like, oh yeah, you did. You sure did. And, but but don't forget, there was also a Jack Hughes breakaway in there. <laughs> yeah. Not um, good. Not no, good. not good. Yeah, I think it was the, you, you got to see the full, full scope of everything from both those teams, which is kind of what made it such a fun game, right? It was like super entertaining. I'm sure both coaches were immensely frustrated. Yeah. Oh yeah. Fans rode the roller coaster of highs and lows throughout <laughs> the game for both. You come both out of it. Power plays played well. All the Hughes gets, all the Hugheses get points. Yeah. You, you come out, you come away from it feeling like you need a smoke, you know, like oh, you're, yeah. you're just, it, it, it was great. I mean, it was a little bit of everything. Every NHL game needs no fewer than three members of the Hughes family in it to guarantee maximum entertainment. And obviously in the Hughes Bowl, like the team with the more Hugheses wins. Like that's not a that's not a shock. Yeah. It was like six five on the final on the scoreboard, but two one on the on the one that mattered. Quinn was hilarious. I I, I kept it on the on the broadcast after the game ended and as I was watching the uh the media availabilities. He was, was really emotional. Eh? Was that you that asked him about um you're like, oh, I'm sure the Devils are the team you probably watched the most other than Yes, other that than was Max me. Tape. Yeah. Well, and then and then so Jack Hughes was asked about it. Mm. Um in the in the other room by Kevin Woodley, and he was like, "No tape, just vibes." No, 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 no. <laughs> no, he was like, "Oh yeah, I knew what to expect." Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, and then and then he sort of walked it back. And right. He was like, "They did a great job pre scouting too." And da-da. but like his initial instinct was like, "I'm glad you noticed that. I yeah. definitely knew what I was doing." Today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, very cool. Now Quinn seemed very sad, even for even for his standards. So he's six and one in that matchup. And one thing about Quinn is there's no like. No, he's not. He's six and one against. Sorry, he's one and six. Yeah, in okay, I was gonna say. I was like, me. I feel like the Devils. I'm own saying the Devils now. are the Devils. Right, right, right. Have, so Jack has owned that matchup. Yes. six and one. Um, and like the thing about Quinn is he's really supportive, right? Like, this is not every time they play one of these games. Some reporter comes and does the like, does the like, do you guys have a bet on this? Like, you know what bragging rights are on the table, right? And Quinn loathes it like you immediately see his body language change like he doesn't he's it's not that he's not competitive with his brother it's that he's because he is it's that he mostly is supportive of his brother and mm. like protective of his brother and you know wants them to succeed in every game that they don't play him in um 
And then, you know, his family was in town. I'm sure it was like a big 48 hours for him. But yeah, I mean, I thought he seemed pretty emotional toward the end of that scrum. And I, you know, I, I'd imagine, I'd imagine giving, given the chorus deal that Hughes has that like being one in six against your brother and now your brother's sucks. Yeah. Okay, Tom, I think, uh, well, we got to get out of here. I wanted to talk to you about uh, Lars Pedersen and, and his contract because I thought that uh, your colleague Chris Johnson now had a, an interesting I thought he nailed it in, in the mailbag. But I feel like, you know, this isn't something that's necessarily going to be resolved before the next time I have you on. Oh, so I maybe, think we'll have time. I think we can build a full show on, on Pedersen because, like, I think, I think he's not playing, he, like, he's not playing at I thought the clip he, that he was early in He's the not, but I thought he was awesome last he's night. He's awesome. Like, he was all over well, it. This is, this is like, you can't put Pedersen with two middle six wingers and expect him to just go out and drive 13% on ice shooting clip every game. Like, the fact is, is that he can do it, and he will do it again, but, like, if he doesn't do it for 15 games, you know, and then everyone's like, well, he's got multiple injuries, and da-da-da, and he's not playing very well, and, you know, you can't pay a guy $12 million if they're going to just... He's... He dominated the Flames. He was one of the three best players on the ice last night. He's playing with Sam Lafferty and Ilya Mikheyev, and any Toronto area listener would be like, really? Yeah. You know, like, I, I don't understand. Like, yeah. if you want a guy to produce, like, the best players in the world, like, you got to get them more help than that. Yeah. I, I don't know what else to say about it. Okay. Plug whatever you want on the way out here. Go check out The Athletic. Have a, have a big column on the Hughes Bowl. Oh, nice. The, the fun and the concern. Um, a fun game that was alarming for all involved. Would, is that fair? <laughs> yes, I think that's your description that yeah. I'm just ripping off. It so. was alarming and it entered in equally, yeah. equally yeah. so. Depending on your uh, glass half full or glass half, it was approach. the rare fun game that that left me worried for all. Yes. <laughs> um, anyway, I've got that column up at theathletic.com. Uh, and a lot of other stuff, of course, covering the Vancouver Canucks and occasionally doing some other stuff. And then I'm on Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. Download that wherever you get your podcasts. Awesome. Well, I'll have you back on soon to do that Pedersen conversation. Oh, actually, can I also plug this? We are, yeah. We've just unveiled like a separate standalone segment. It's called The Whiteboard. Okay. And we do 25 minutes, everything you need to know about the Canucks in one day. So even if you're listening to this and have no time for my takes, give that more neutral product a shot. No no one listening you. to this right now has no time for your takes. Everyone <laughs> is saying- Especially not to this point. Everyone is saying more grants. <laughs> uh, Tom, this was a blast. We'll have you on again soon. My quick plugs. Um, recently did shows on both Quinn Hughes. If you're listening to this show by yeah. now, you're probably interested in that. And- your boy Sasha Barkov uh, with Daryl Belpre wow. recently. So go on the literally all my faves. Yeah, and Are they you guys were both doing Palat next. Uh, no, I think we're doing Jack Eichel next, who's also one of your also, faves. Oh, so um, the, the, we didn't talk about it, but the game I saw Jack Eichel play last week in Vancouver, like that was prime Joe Thornton. Yeah, it was. Prime, it was the return of prime level. Joe Thornton. He's continued what he did last postseason. It's I, been really fun to I, watch. I, I don't think he took more than three strides the whole game, and he dominated the entire thing. It was so cool. Okay. So look forward to that. Go check that out on the YouTube page. You can watch along with me and Belfry and go join the PDOcast community in the Discord. If you like this show, you're going to love it there. The invite link is in the show notes. That's all for today. Thank you for listening. And we'll be back soon with plenty more of the Hockey PDOcast streaming on the Sportsnet Radio Network.